so we're going to see how this goes. What I'm trying to do, let me just tell you what I'm, I'm working on. This is kind of like some ideas in progress. And I'm trying to think through, because I'm, I'm a college professor and I work with uh, millennials, obviously, college students. I'm also raising two teenage sons. And, yeah, <laughs> we're sorry. And so I'm trying to, to understand what, ev like, evangelism or apologetics. Do you know what I mean by apologetics? Like a defense of the faith. So what a defense of the faith and what evangelism is going to look like in an age of increasing skepticism and uh, uh, disbelief. And so you guys know these statistics that rates of agnosticism and atheism are on the rise. Uh, the rise of the nuns uh, is higher amongst the millennials and our generations. People just not endorsing any faith at all. Uh, there's even the rise of the duns, people walking away from church. They're just kind of done with the church. So you're aware of this, right? This is, the, this is the backdrop of apologetics and evangelism. And I don't know about you, but it's hard in, a, in a, an age that's increasingly skeptical and disenchanted, more on that word disenchantment in a little bit, um, to figure out what the opening moves of faith should be. Because um, it seems like to me, as I've talked to my college students and my sons, um, the appeal for Christianity in the modern world sounds like this. Christianity is about making yourself believe in unbelievable things, right? That, that, that to, to convert or to apologize for the faith is to kind of get somebody who doesn't believe in these things to, to just believe in it. You just got to somehow make yourself believe this. Believe in God and believe in the Holy Spirit like we're talking about doing this thing. And so don't you guys feel that? that it, so if that's not the move, you know, what is the move that, that you make? Where, where do you begin to evoke any sort of ache and longing for the faith? And, and so this is my attempt to think some of this through. And so some of this might feel a little, little luxury um, to kind of describe the situation. So you, I hope that doesn't put you off, but, but it's my attempt to provisionally put some ideas together and kind of report on some of my experiments to try to evangelize or give a defense for the faith to college students. Um, so these, this is, my classroom is kind of a laboratory for a lot of this stuff. So um, these are, so c consider this kind of like a, what would be the word? like a provisional report from the field of something, somebody trying something a little different um, with young people. So, um, so I got to, let me hold this mic so I can. So um, let me describe disenchantment uh, to you. That might be a new word for some of you. It's a, it's a, it's a sociological term um, that kind of describes a 500-year journey. Or if you're a fan of Scooby-Doo, <laughs> a 30-minute journey um, from... An enchanted world to a disenchanted world. How many of you guys have watched Scooby-Doo? You know, okay. So you know Scooby-Doo begins with what? There's a report in a town of some ghost or goblin, or right? Some occult force is in the town. So the, the story begins with enchantment. And 500 years ago, that's the way the world was. The world was full of occult forces and magic and witches and curses and gods and devils and demons and exorcisms and so on and so forth. Very enchanted world. And that's the kind of where Scooby-Doo begins. But over the course of 30 minutes, what happens to the investigators? They kind of discover, well, wait a second. This little, this little ghost or goblin or whatever, there might be, I think there's something going on here, and they set a trap for it. And there's a big chasing, and they trap the ghost or the boogeyman, and they unmask him, 
and it's Mr. Jenkins, the greedy banker. You know, that's what's going on. This whole spooky thing was just a, a distraction. And so that's kind of what has happened in our world. We, we've begun with an enchanted world, but we end, by the time we end with the Scooby-Doo episode, we've kind of ended with just, there's just human beings in, in the world. Um, in my book, Reviving Old Scratch, I, I kind of use that trajectory to describe kind of how we think about spiritual warfare. Well, 500 years ago, spiritual warfare meant we were doing battle with, you know, angelic and demonic forces. But now a lot of us kind of unpack spiritual warfare in social justice terms, right? So it's, it's, we've politicized what it means to do battle against the dark forces of the world. Those, those are systemic oppression and injustice. So we've disenchanted our battle with the principalities and powers. And there are some definite upsides to that. But I'm suggesting that, that faith, I'm thinking broad, more broadly here, that faith is now harder in a disenchanted era with the rise of skepticism and doubt and so on and so forth. And the reason why I like this enchantment, disenchantment framework is it does, it, it's going to move us out of a belief-disbelief framework. Because when it's framed as belief-disbelief, we're always going to be arguing about what you believe what you don't believe. But when we talk about enchantment, disenchantment, it, it puts it, because I'm a psychologist, in an experiential register. Like, like it's, it's, it shifts it down into the way you experience your day-to-day -day life. And I think I would like us to begin our arguments for the faith and evangelism at that, not what you believe or disbelieve, right? These hard-to-believe metaphysical propositions. Instead, get down into um, aches and longings and desires. Um, and, I th and that's so... I want to talk about not belief and disbelief, but enchanted worlds and disenchanted worlds. And I'm going to argue that one of the things we're going to try to do is evoke in people a, a longing for enchantment, a lost enchantment. Um, so just to kind of give you some, like I said, this is a little luxury, and I apologize for all of that. One way to think about all of this is that we live on this horizontal human dimension. There's just me, you, and particle physics, okay? And 500 years ago, but there was also, in addition, there was a vertical, heavenly, spiritual realm that enchanted our, our world. And disenchantment is this downward pressure of skepticism. We might call it the collapse of the sacred. And increasingly, we think about our lives and what's going on in our world in, in scientific or materialistic or human terms. And so this, this vertical dimension is collapsing. Maybe not completely for some of us, but it's definitely harder for us to believe in some of these things. Um, and so when all of that evaporates, when all we are left with just the horizontal human interactions, that's what I mean by uh, a disenchanted experience. Now what I wanna do before I get into the positive side of this, I just wanna describe some of the forces that have produced this situation. Some of them might be a little bit surprising. And the reason why I wanna go through this survey is because um, if, we, if we understand these forces, uh, we can understand how we maybe have unwittingly participated in our own disenchantment. Uh, this this uh, whole, you know, lectureship is about the Holy Spirit. And I, I was, last night I was talking in a session in the Churches of Christ. Um, the Churches of Christ, in our relationship with the Holy Spirit, was already really, really disenchanted. Do you remember we, that... When I grew up at the Church of Christ, we didn't talk about the spiritual world at all. It was all through Bible study and rationality. So Churches of Christ were already really, really disenchanted um, to begin with. So it's not far for them us to move 
towards even further disenchantment for our young people because they already begin. We've already disenchanted them a great deal. Don't worry about the Holy Spirit. Does it make sense? So if you understand the ways you are already deeply disenchanted and raise up your children in a very disenchanted faith, and then we kind of go, why do they find this hard to believe? You know, well, because we've disenchanted them. We've participated. So if we understand causes, we can maybe be better diagnosticians about the way we unwittingly, even as religious people, contribute to the atheism of our children. Does it make sense? There are disenchanted religious impulses, and if you can't spot them, then you you repli- you just create your you're, you're sawing on the branch off that you're sitting on, okay? More on that in a minute. So I want to talk about a couple different sources of disenchantment. Obviously, Newtonian mechanics. Um, that's complicated. So you probably think about it this way. Uh, one of the things that disenchanted our world is have you guys ever heard of the watch and the watchmaker argument? You know, and and that used to be you know we used to think that's a really good argument for the for belief in God. Right, that, that we see the intricate design, we watch a, a, a special about the cosmos or particle physics, or, and, and, and we just glory at the intricate mechanism, and then we surmise, right, if there was a beautiful watch, there had to have been what? Right, like a watchmaker, so argument from design. What's interesting about that argument is that, again, it was an unwitting, probably unexpected source of disenchantment, right? It seemed at the time that, that was a really good argument, but it's a really disenchanting argument. Why is that? Because if you have a watch out there, where's the watchmaker? Right? It's just God sets it in motion, and then where's God? He's, dis- he's, he's separated from it. And so some of the, even these, some of these arguments we make for the, our faith are, are kind of in the back door, because if evolution steps in and go, hey, by the way, you can get design without a God, boom, you're there. You know? So, so some, basically, we, we began to see the world more and more basic as a machine. And if there's a machine, you don't necessarily need a living, vibrant spiritual presence that permeates all of existence. The way we used to think about the world, sometimes people call this the Catholic imagination. The Catholic imagination is described as this sacramental ontology. The idea that God and creation were kind of interpenetrated and that all of existence crackled through with the existence of God. It wasn't just mechanism. The world was alive with the spirit in every sort of interaction. We don't think of, we don't think of the cosmos that way. Some people do. Okay, the enchanted people in the room do. Um, most of us, though, see it all as a mechanism, as a machine, and that's a disenchanted, and that imagination that the world is a machine, and if you want to fix the machine, you go to mechanics. They're called doctors. You know, they're called, well, mechanics, <laughs> carpenter. You know, you go to mechan- people who fix the machine with medication or that's what's broken versus a sense a throbbing sense that God's spirit hovers over or permeates all of existence. We've lost that imagination. So, a mechanistic view of the cosmos. Another big source that scholars have pointed to about the disenchantment of uh, the world is actually the Protestant Reformation. Most of us in the room are Protestants, so we can only blame ourselves for the rise of atheism. Um, Why? Because we've made this journey in Protestantism from a mystical journey. Has anybody, anybody grow up Catholic or friends of Catholics or enjoy Catholic spirituality. It's a very mystical experience. 
that Protestants have turned the encountering with God is, is less a mystical encounter than it is a kind of moral, moral performance. We've, we've moralized the faith. And I'm going to try to give you examples of that. And, and here's why. Basically, here's a way to think about it. Protestantism is... Well, this is not a good way to say it. What, what Newton did to the cosmos in disenchanting it, turning it into a watch, this is what Protestants did to Christianity. Because if Christianity reduces to being a good person, or increasingly in our culture, voting well, seriously, um, that's one of the big trouble. I mean, millennials already think they're good people. Do you see that? That's the, they're already good people because they vote better than you. And so you're trying to tell them they have to be a good person, but they're already voting for the progressive politics that they, you know, does it make sense? And so that's the trouble with Protestants. If we moralize our faith, and you're already a good person, then why roll out of bed on Sunday morning? Why, 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 you know? And so if we disenchant our faith and we just moralize it, then, then uh, so there's a variety of ways that Protestants have made this journey from the mystical to the, to the moral. Um, the way we Protestants disenchanted space, you've all been in cathedrals, right? Very, you know, very enchanted, supernatural, spiritual experience. I love going to cathedrals. Um, like if you were like in New York City, you'd want to pop into St. Patrick, would you not? Like you want to go in there. Nobody's knocking on the door to go into your church. You know, well, wow, these seats and this 1950s decor is just really <laughs> like, and, and, the, and, and the reason why is for Protestants, that's, in, that's, in, that's a feature, not a bug for Protestants. That, that God, God is, is, is not uniquely associated. This is, our church is, a, a functional space. It, it is supposed to be functional. And so when I walk into your space, I see functionality. I don't see a mystical encounter with the divine. I see mic stands and a drum set, or that's for the churches of Christ that are going to hell. Um, and uh, <laughs> I shouldn't bring that up. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just saying, you just, you just see chords and song, but it's just all functional. It's just, it's not, and, it, and we lock it up. You know, nobody's going to need this space until the next time a group gathers. It's not, we're not going in there for a mystical encounter with the divine. So we disenchanted our spaces. God's everywhere, but the minute kind of God becomes everywhere, he's kind of like nowhere. Um, we disenchanted time. We used to move through rhythms and cadences of sacred time. Going from Advent and to Christmas, and um, then we don't. And then we go to Lent and Easter. We're still in the Easter season. Are you guys aware? For those, so those of you guys that move through liturgical time, like what time is it? You're like, well, it's Easter. You know, in in the liturgical calendar, Jesus is still risen. He didn't immediately ascend to heaven. He was he was around until the ascension, until so those following the liturgical calendar are waiting for Ascension Sunday. So we disenchanted time because, you know, we don't want to create these Catholic things, and some of us don't like that. Well, if you disenchant time, then what time, who keeps your clock? 
who keeps your clock is um, the economy or the nation state. They're going to set the time for you. It's, you know, Monday's going to be the work week, and it's going to be some sort of holiday of the nation. It's President's Day. It's Veterans Day. And so we, we've disenchanted our time, so we don't have any, so no space, no time. And again, I'll, the reason I'm going through all this, again, is because here are resources for re-enchantment. If we can kind of see the forces that lead us to disenchantment, these become resources for re-enchantment in your church. So you might say to yourself, why should I pay attention as a Church of Christ person to the liturgical calendar? Because your people are disenchanted. The only way they have think of time is through a secular, disenchanted, functional time. So that's one reason to re-enchant your time and your space. Um, and then we disenchanted people. In Catholicism, there's like really special, separate, holy people. They're called the saints. And we have saints, too. Everybody's a saint. But when you look around the pews, you're like, not impressive. You're like, really? This person's in? Yeah. Everybody's a saint. And so it's not a, it's not a special thing anymore. You know? You're like, it's a club that everybody get in. You just don't really. Everybody's a saint. Um, so that we shifted, we shifted, um, and there are some good things here too, because the idea here was like saints kind of did their thing, and they built up all this kind of spiritual merit, and all the rest of us sinners could appeal to that merit and could get into heaven because they were doing such good work. Um, but one of the things that Protestant, Protestantism did was it, it raised the moral stakes on the laity. It's like, no, no, um, you're debauchery, you're drinking, you're sleeping around. Like, no, no, they upped the game on the, on the laity, and so everybody has to attain to holiness. Um, that's a good, that's not a bad thing. Um, but it did, again, democratize all of this and disenchant even people. And then even our sacraments are disenchanted. And, and this is one of the hardest things to try to explain to Protestants about how Catholics think of um, the real presence of the, of the Eucharist. Like, like, so you're all aware, right? You know, when Catholics, when the priest says the words of consecration, like, that's really Jesus, as in, and some of you guys are like, really? Like, really? That is like being in the physical presence of our Lord and Savior on earth. That's how Catholics see it. So, so when they, you know, this, this explains why if you go to the chapels where they're kind of, you see the, you see the I don't know what it's called, but, you know, they're, they're in there praying to the host or in the room with the host. You've seen chapels like that? And you're like, what are they doing in there? Like, why are they? The answer is because Jesus is physically present in the room. We've disenchanted that. When we pass our communion trays, is Jesus physically there mystically? No, it's a, it's a memory aid. Right? Communion for us is a memory aid. We, we take it to do what? To not encounter the mystical, enchanted presence of Jesus, but what? To, to remember a historical event. And he died for our sins. And so even, even in that sense, Jesus is not directly, mystically encountered um, in that sacrament. So I'm just pointing out here that, that Protestantism disenchanted Christianity in significant ways. From space to time to people to the sacraments themselves, God is vacated out. And nobody's really actually bumping into God in a kind of direct way. And churches of Christ even double down on it even more with our theology of the Holy Spirit for generations. I'm saying, like, we completely evacuate it from any sort of spiritual encounter. Um, and so why go to church if you're not ever really going to bump into God? 
like, and I mean by bump into God, like, I mean mystically bump into God. And I think that's one of the things that makes it hard for millennials to go to church is because we don't have anything for them and, um, where they're actually having a mystical encounter anymore. And I think Catholics are better equipped at this than we are. So this is John Calvin. And I put John Calvin up there because his Geneva experiment, where you had kind of like a righteous Christian rule of a city, and then you also had all these moral demands on the laity, right? No, you know, no gambling, and kind of represents the Protestant ideal. The Protestant ideal of Christianity was this moral and um, rightly well-ordered political society, right? That's, that's what Protestantism was after, this this moral and politically well-ordered society. And that's a disenchanted Christianity. And I would bet a lot of people in your pews, when you kind of really dig down about what you think being Christian is, they're going to say something that ultimately boils down to this slide. They're going to say that being a Christian means I'm, I'm trying to be like Jesus. I'm trying to deal with my addictions. I'm trying to have a good marriage. I want to be a good mom and a good dad. I want to, you know, mow my lawn and be a good citizen and pay my taxes and and I want to and, I, and and I'm also but I'm also concerned about the world. So I'm going to go on a mission trip and dig a well in Africa and we're going to feed our home, you know, our hungry neighbors and we're going to does it make sense? We're going to we're going to unpack our Christianity's moral self-improvement and a better political order. And conservatives and liberals have different visions of what that political order is is entailing, right? I mean um, I mean, conservatives have their vision of the good person, the good moral person, and, and conservatives and liberals have their own vision of what a good person is. Still, both of them are orienting and orbiting a vision of a good person and a well-ordered society. You with me? That's disenchanted Christianity. And that's kind of the Christianity we've handed our children, to be a good person and to participate in a well-ordered society. To right the wrongs. You with me? That's deism. Because it's, it's, that's, the, that's the moral version of the watchmaker. Because once we make that move, the next question they ask of us is, but aren't atheists good people? Sometimes better? Can't an atheist dig a well in Africa? alongside the Christian, and the game's over, right? The game's over because, and you've been in those arguments with people, haven't you? What's the next move? Like, uh, you, you know, it puts you in a really bad position because the next move is to somehow disparage atheists. Well, they're not really <laughs> good people. You, you, know, they're, you know, like you try to somehow got to like tear them, their moral witness down. And so... This is where I think we've painted ourselves. I think we've disenchanted Christianity by turning it into a moral and political project. And then when it's pointed out to us that people can be moral and they can be politically active and in ways that Christians even are not, then there is little, very, there's very little reason to participate in a local faith community. Do you, let me ask you this way. Do you need to go to your church to be a good person? or to vote well, then why go? If this is what Christianity ultimately really means for millennials. Does it make sense? So this is, 
some of you guys are depressed at this point, so let me <laughs> turn the corner. So I want you to understand some of this stuff because um, this, is, this is where the apologetics move begins, right here at this slide. Um, we have handed off to our, stu our, our, our kids this kind of Christianity, and I would like to suggest that if we lose an enchanted Christianity, the reason why you go to church, the reason you pray, because you're... I don't know how to say this. Unless we are bumping into the living God, like standing in front of the burning bush, like then, then it's hard to make an appeal for faith. We need to recover an enchanted imagination that we are actually bumping in to however you conceive of that sacred burning presence that crackles through every moment of every day. That you are constantly tapping into that over and over and over. And that is the Holy Spirit, and that is the life that's pouring into us and washing. Or like, if we're, unless we're creating those experiences for our young people, we're just giving them more morality and politics. And they're fine on that. They think they're great um, on a lot of that stuff. One more source of disenchantment. This guy from my discipline. That's Dr. Freud. Um, the way the modern self it used to be, Meaning was achieved, purpose in life, the compass of your life was achieved by aligning yourself with the sacred. Well, what is God's will for me? And I would align my life purposes, my life map to the sacred dimension. And that sacred dimension would make my life significant, meaningful, well-ordered, and on the right path. And, that, and, we, and, and many of us still orient that way. What is God's will what is God's will? But if that transcendent dimension collapses, and it's harder for us to believe in, we still want to lead deep and meaningful lives. And so one of the, one of the interesting things, you guys might have been reading about this over the last couple of years, is kind of we live in this age of authenticity, okay? And the reason we live in this age of authenticity, so instead of going up to the heavens, um, we, go, we go deep into ourselves. If you want to find meaning in life, you don't ask God, what do you got to do? You got to figure out who you are, your true self, your truth, and once you find that truth in the, in your psyche, um, you live true to that. And so instead of going up, we go in, and so we're very introverted now in the way we think about meaning and purpose um, by achieving meaning that way. Now I'm saying all of that to set up this next little bit. So what is the strategy for producing faith in a secular age? And this is the experimental part. So I've told you the story about how it happened, just a bit of the story. Um, and it's not my story. A lot of this is in like Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age. Um, so most of what you've seen is borrowed. But here's, the, here's the thing I want to explore. It, instead of trying to convince people, skeptics, to believe in things they find hard to believe in, what I'd like to suggest for the last 30 minutes here is to what I'll show you here in a little bit is called, I'll call it existential jujitsu. And I'm not a really martial artist person, so I have to like Wikipedia this. Like, what, what is the martial art where you use the energy of your opponent against themselves? And what came up is jujitsu. I have no idea if that's true. Is that true? Anybody know? There are other, but you guys have heard of that, right? There's these martial arts where you use the kinetic energy of your opponent against themselves. You don't attack them directly, but you, 
And so this is what I'm going to suggest to you. Apologetics and evangelism is a form of jujitsu. Instead of like trying to like stave off the disenchantment, believe, 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 but I find it hard. Then what you need to do is then go with the disenchantment, double down on it, and that's the title of this session, to become disenchanted with disenchantment. We go with the disenchantment and we run it into the ground, reaching it to its kind of existential pit, and then go, How's that feel? To create at that moment a ache for God might be dead, as Nietzsche declared, but he sure did leave some big shoes to fill. Like, I miss that. I want that. I need that. And so instead of going with mental propositions about metaphysics, we begin with this, these longings for meaning and purpose and direction, and, and we try to begin there by becoming, we try to cultivate disenchantment with the disenchantment. Instead of worrying about it, we go with it a little bit. So what does that look like? How, 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 what are some soft spots where disenchantment feels bad? Um, and so this is my survey of things I've talked to my students um, uh, about. One of the places where you'll, one place disenchanted people, young people and liberal people experience this the most is with creation. If they experience God anywhere, it's, it's in creation. Um, what's interesting in the world of psychology is there's been a lot of talk about the kind of evangelical purity culture in the realm of sexuality and how, if you've read Jonathan Haidt's work, uh, uh, liberals don't have this purity psychology. You've heard that, you know. Conservatives think about purity, liberals don't. But now studies are starting to come out and go, actually liberals do have a purity psychology. It's just not in the realm of sexuality. It's often experienced in the realm of nature. They did a study where there was this sacred mountain um, and, and subjects were told that uh, some mountain climbers to climb this mountain had to deface the mountain by drilling in climbing bolts. And, and they, left, they left the bolts in, in the wall of this mountain. And they asked liberals and conservatives if those bolts in the mountain were a desecration, a, a violation of the sacred mountain. So it's a sacred violation, a purity violation. Conservatives like, nah, they would say that, um, <laughs> right? Nah. But can, liberals were like, no, this sacred mountain was desecrated. We marred it. They, they do, liberals do f experience the sacred in the realm of creation. So that's one of the locations where you can kind of see them playing with a sacred imagination here. Um, and I think we could, that's a place where we can work on that. One of my troubles with Malibu, <laughs> it's a great sentence, as everybody, everybody comes, because you can get this, you get this sacramental imagination here on this campus, don't you? You're looking out, the ocean, you're like, ah. Oh something magical and mystical about all this and I like that the trouble is is that um, one of the ways we got to kind of capture this imagination isn't just in these pretty places um, because like I tell people that's not God you're feeling that's called vacation you know like we can't <laughs> put save up the enchanted moments for for vacation first of all it's it's classist right 
you know, you taking your little Instagram on the beaches with your feet in the sand. What kind of person would do that, right? Take a picture and post it to, his, to, to make all your friends envious. That's not a good person that does that. Tell me anybody puts that on there and like, you're a bad person. You're a bad person for doing that, right? Um, you're just trying to make your friends envious. What's it like, though? What's it like, though? I want you to think about this. What's it like, though, to train ourselves to cultivate an enchanted imagination in the inner city, in Abilene, Texas, that godless wasteland of a, where I live, you know? What's it like, right? So, so there is a resource here. Creation can be a resource, but often we're not often trained to be very intentional and attentional about the enchantments of creation in ordinary, ugly kind of spaces, you know? that we do save it up for Malibu. And I kind of, so I, re, I kind of resist the whole thing that, you know, I've been telling people for weeks, they're like, you excited about going to Malibu? I'm like, ah, views are overrated. That's what I say to them, um, views are overrated. And the reason is because if God is always in Malibu, I don't live here. I got to find God in my space with creation. And so I think that's one of the things you can work on with your people is how do we cultivate this sacramental imagination with creation um, where we live every day, and not just on vacation. Because there's a lot of us that are very, one of the reasons, one of the things that we, where we resist disenchantment, because if, if creation is just raw material, if it's just particles and molecules, and there's nothing really sacred about it, if, if the disenchanted view of the cosmos is basically this, it's all just a bunch of Lego blocks. Just look at the periodic table. It's just Lego blocks. And so why not? reconfigure and strip it down and turn it into something else. Uh, a disenchanted view of creation, most of us find kind of as a sacred offense that we could just treat a tree as if it's just we could just rip these molecules down and recorporate it into something else. There's something we feel like, like, no, I think this, these atoms matter in a sacred way. I know it's just carbon and whatever, you know, whatever those, I know it's just, I know in one view, it's just stuff, but it's there's an, there's something that invokes in us when somebody's going to cut an old tree down. Um, that is a longing for something sacred. The I don't have time to read it to you, but uh, Manley Hopkins' poem how he talks about how the world is charged with the grandeur of God. That's a great line to cultivate an enchanted imagination to begin seeing the world as charged with like electricity, with the grandeur of God. We already have inclinations in that direction. We can double down on it. Um, hallowing, uh, disenchanted with the loss of the sacred. Um, one of the things I spend a lot of time with students, I was talking about how um, we just have this innate human need to hallow, to, to make sacred or holy. We, and I've written a lot about this online if you follow my blog. Here's a classic example of this, of our... Right? God may be dead, but we miss him. Like prayer. Let's take prayer as an example. Disenchanted people struggle with prayer. Does it work? What's it for? Is anybody listening? The whole thing is, you know, hard to get your head around if you're dealing with lots of doubts. That's a disenchanted experience. So, how do we increase our disenchantment with the disenchantment? Well, here's an example. Somebody comes to you and they tell you something horribly tragic 
a friend comes to you and they're, they're in great suffering and pain. And they're weeping and you're weeping and you're crying and, and then you're done. And then you say to them, what? Thanks for sharing. I'll be thinking of you. Like, like we, we, in that moment, when we bump into something, we, we, that we want something to say, what just happened, the pain that was just exposed to me, must be, what does the word holy mean? Exactly. This must be what? Set apart. That's hallowing. This must be made. What? This is not a normal, hey, watched the game last night? Yeah, I watched the game last night. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. Well, I don't know how you guys talk at the water cooler. <laughs> was just, that was a weird simulation of what happens at office where I, you know, I don't usually go up there, hey, how's it? I don't know. Anyway, you get my point? There are things that happen, pain that is suffered, experiences that are shared that need to be somehow set apart. And in those moments, we sure miss prayer because it's those moments we realize the only thing that really hallows what just happened are the words, I will be praying for you, right? Have you guys not, and if you, if you evacuate prayer from our world, we're going to be bumping up against stuff all the time going like, I don't know what, I mean, I don't know what the words are. I don't know what the rituals are. Um, I, 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 the closest we get is I'll be thinking about you. And that just seems so inadequate. That's disenchanted with our disenchantment. I don't believe in prayer, but man, I need it right here. I need to say that word to you. And some of us in this room have said, I'll pray for you, and you don't even believe in prayer because you know you need it. You need to hallow, and you're like, they need to hear that I hallowed it. And it's not just prayer, right? Any tragedy or event that happens, we rush in with candles and vigils, and we have this deep need to make something sacred. It's not just events. It's not just tragedy. It's deaths, births, and marriages. You know, a disenchanted marriage is just going to go to the Justice of Peace, sign a contract, like, all right, we're hitched, you know. We, we, this is, no, this is not a normal, this is not like signing a warranty for your VCR. I don't even think VCRs exist anymore, but, but you know, you're at Best Buy. Would you like to warranty on that? And like, I'll sign it, but I vaguely feel like I'm being ripped off. Like, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, sure, things might break. This is a contract that's different. And so we hallow it. We, there's pretty dresses and there's tinkling lights and there's a sacred, solemn pr vows are made. And, and you might look around for a sacred person to do the work, you know, like a pastor or a preacher there or somebody special. And you hallow that to give it weight, to give it texture. So you'll notice we have these deep longings. And if you just completely disenchant the world, um, then, then we miss it. Um, so from pain to transitions to deaths. Um, the other thing where we feel disenchantment is, is that a lot of us are increasingly dissatisfied with a, a consumeristic existence. Um, here's a theological way to frame it. We, we are, as humans to be happy, um, 
we need to live towards a future and towards hope. Like we, we are future-oriented animals. We, to use some jargon, we are eschatological creatures. We like to have some thing toward the end. And all of us, if you're enchanted, right, we have this thing that we're moving towards called the kingdom of God, however you conceive of that, right? But if you're disenchanted and you're not living for this kingdom of God, what are you living for? Next Super Bowl party. <gasps> the Avengers has a new movie out. So excited. You know, the next Christmas is coming. Vacation, right? You just, you suddenly realize that you, you live forward from one entertainment like to the next. And you know capitalism is just out there just making tons of money off of that, right? Here's the next thing. <gasps> new iPhone's coming out. We're all so excited. You know, just, it's just, Capitalism, instead of eschatologically moving toward the kingdom of God, we, we eschatologically move to the next thing um, our, our market economy will, will put out in front of us. And after a while, you kind of feel that, don't you? That dissatisfaction from just moving one, one entertainment to another. You know, the, the, the ache of like, oh my gosh, I finished all my Netflix binges and now I don't know. There's nothing to watch anymore. And, and you know, you just... You're not living for anything but the next release of Stranger Things or whatever it is. And we feel that. And, and I do think that is one of the biggest hooks for millennials. And, and, you, and so I'm, I'm suggesting to preachers and youth pastors in the room and mothers and fathers to kind of say, is, 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 that, is that what you're going to do? You're going to live from the next Marvel comic release? Is that, you know, the next the next Call of Duty game and play it for 48 hours straight? You know, is that, that's life for you? Do you not want something bigger? So you, you double down on the disenchantment. You, you, you bring it, you surface it, and you create in them an ache for something a little bit more heroic, something bigger than that. But where is that going to come from? It's got to, it's got to be metaphysical. It's got to be, if, 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 if all there is is just us and our entertainments, then where is that bigger vision coming from? And, and so you start reaching toward the heavens a little bit there. Now, you might say at this point, well, what about going into my inner truth, right? That's how I'll, I'll find out what my true purpose is. I'll, I'll take the Enneagram or whatever it is. You find your, your strength finders or your little passion. That's you, and you stay true to you, little camper. You know, like I'm going to be true to myself. And that's what they do. And I'm not disparaging of that. I am saying, though, this is like if your ultimate meaning is based upon your true self. Well, I don't know if you've looked in the mirror recently, but you're a bit of a mess. And then so am I. And so if, if I somehow have to come, come up with my own truth, well, I've changed my mind multiple times. You start realizing that I am a really fickle thing to build a durable sense of life purpose because I, you know, and so I even doubled down with that with my students. I will, I will call in the question, like, how many times do you change your major? And you're like, well, a lot. Like, exactly. You're going to need something, you're going to need a more durable comforts, you know, co compass in your life than your whims because um, those will go up and down. And plus, just when you think you got your story figured out and you've got it, well, there will be a cancer diagnosis, and you're going to get divorced. 
and you'll have a traumatic breach with a child, like you will, this is, uh, this is what it sounds like to be in one of my lectures, you will suffer. <laughs> I said, I hope you don't, but odds are you will. And at that point, you got a story that could put all that back together again, right? Double down on the disenchantment. You, you will suffer, and the next Marvel release is not going to get you through that. You got to have a bigger story than your own little truth because your truth will crack. And if you don't have some glue um, to put it back together, it's best I can tell college students will start listening at that moment. When it's, you know, particularly when you say, you will suffer, they'll wake up a little bit. They're like, what did he say? <laughs> Why is he so upset? <laughs> like, I'm trying to save you. I know you think you're in here just to get a grade, but I'm trying to save you. Anyway, I'm a little dramatic. Okay, this last one is going to be real subtle. And if you are a really disenchanted person, you might not think what I'm about to say is going to work. But if you spend any time with people who are doubters, you guys know the number one reason people doubt is what? Well, Christians, yeah, that's true. But no, what's really, what's the thing that really caused people to lose faith? You know, you should know this, right? I mean, anybody who should have a working knowledge of the biggest reason why people lose their faith. I don't hear from God. Bad things happen. Problems, suffering, pain and suffering is the number one thing you'll hear, people, you know. It's the number one. So you might say, can you do existential jujitsu with suffering? Here's my best take. I am not saying this works. This is experimental. Well, the question I ask my students is this. You're watching your Neil, what's his, the, the astronomer Neil Gross? Yeah, you're watching his cosmos, and you're showing him the beautiful things. You know, it's the watch, right? It's the watch. It's beautiful. And the scientists parade in front of us this beautiful mechanism, the gorgeous thing. Have you ever been there, right? And they go, is that not enough for you? You know, Carl Sagan, you're on a pale blue dye. Is that enough for you, the beauty and the intricacy of how it all fits? You know? I find they, they, they make religious statements about it. It's, it's, that's enough for me. It's transcendent. So where's the existential jujitsu in that? Is cancer beautiful? Because it's a part of the watch. I mean, in, in one sense, it is, isn't it? As a mechanism, the replication, the chemistry, it's gorgeous, is it not? From a disenchanted perspective. But when you ask millennials, is cancer beautiful? There's a part of them who will revolt. And they'll go, no, it seems, seems wrong. And I go, where do you get that? Where, where do you get the perch to call this beautiful cosmos wrong? That's a moral judgment. It's just a watch. You know, you can't walk up to a, this pew and say it's wrong. And if cancer is eating away at a child, who are you to say it's wrong? You're disenchanted. You don't have a perch to call it wrong. But there's something deep in us that does, wants to say this is a catastrophe. 
that the world may be a watch, but the watch sucks. And that feeling is that feeling like there's something wrong. And here's the thing. I get that that feeling of wrongness is then directed toward God. It creates our theodicy problem. But one of the but what I tell my students is I would rather have that problem. I'd rather have a metaphysical belief that that this is tragic than the disenchanted view which suggests it's all just billiard balls moving around. And cancer is no more wrong or right than anything else is wrong or right. I can't stand by a grave and and object if I'm an enchanted disenchanted person. But at least Christianity allows you to stand at the grave and scream at the heavens and say this is wrong. It gives you the capacity for revolt. So the existential jujitsu here is, and again, I'm not saying this works for you. What I'm suggesting is the existential jujitsu is that the very thing we use to lose faith in God, to me, is the, one of the very things that causes me to have faith, which is I get to cry and scream and say, I don't think cancer is beautiful at all. Because I have this vision of a kingdom of God where that things will not be wrong anymore. And that disjoint between the kingdom coming and what I have right now, that gap, I'm really angry at. But at least I have a gap to complain about. And if you don't have the metaphysic, you have no gap and you have no revolt. Um, again, I don't know if that's persuasive or not, but that's one of the things I've tried with my students. Um, and guess what? on their final exam, because I actually test over this. The question that they remember more than anything in, in my class is that, is cancer beautiful? That, that gets in their, that's a worm that gets in their head and they can't shake it because they want to say no, but they don't know how because they don't believe anything, <laughs> but they just feel it. Um, is cancer beautiful? And I know some of you guys are dealing with cancer in your family, so I'm sorry that got personal. Um, so what I'm trying, and I'm, am I almost out of time? I got a couple minutes. What I'm trying to suggest, and this comes from um, Charles Taylor's well, what I'm trying to suggest is that we're not just dealing with disenchantment. We're not just struggling with doubt. Time to time, moment to moment, we bump into God from time to time. We bump into the magic from time to time. That there's the downdrafts of enchantment, disenchantment, but there's also moments in our lives when we're looking out at a beautiful Malibu sea and we have the enchantment of creation. We feel that. And when we stand at a graveside, we realize this is wrong, which is a moral judgment on an impersonal watch. But I feel something here. And when somebody shares suffering and you say, I really would like to say, I will pray for you, but I don't believe in prayer, you feel it there. Or there's a tragedy and we flock with our candles, lighting them to whatever. And when we sit there and put twinkly lights up, when we get married, we feel this updraft back toward the heavens again. And so my suggestion for cultivating faith in, in a, a secular age is learning how to surf the thermals of enchantment. Do you guys know how, like, these, these birds, they're in these canyons, how they get to the top? They, can't, they don't just fly straight to the top. It's too much work. Do you know what they do? What do these birds do? 
the, the, the air heats up at the bottom of the canyon, and it starts creating these thermal updrafts because the hot air rises. And what these birds do is they, they feel for their wings, and they try to catch that very subtle, it's not a wind, it's, an up, it's a slight, and they just circle this thermal from the bottom of the canyon to the top by just surfing it. Let me suggest that faith in a secular age is like surfing the thermals. These updrafts are not monsoons. They are subtle hints of the, of the sacred, moments of uplift when we look at a tree or the, the blue bonnets in Texas. You know, it's God forsaken, but the blue bonnets come, so you have hope. <laughs> it's like a, it's a little resurrection flower. It's like, wow, I missed you. And you surf it. And so... Faith in a secular age to me is, 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 moot, is trying to work really hard. Instead of, you got to get out of your head asking all your questions. You got to start kind of putting your wings out, sensing all the different places where God is trying to speak into you. So I've talked a little bit about this, the existential jujitsu. I do think we can learn a lot from the Catholics by cultivating a sacramental imagination. I mean, Catholics believe that. Um, it's very hard to love spirit directly. Spirit-loving spirit, which is very Protestant, is very hard to do. God comes to us through matter, and we love God through matter. God's always inner, right? So we need to, if we struggle with the faith feeling vaporous and in, in, insubstantial, one of the things we need to do is kind of populate our lives with kind of material things that kind of help re-enchant us. Remember, re-enchanting space, re-enchanting time. It's been very helpful to me to kind of lean on our Catholic brothers and sisters to, 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 to celebrate the liturgical year, and to do that at home, to re-enchant your time, to re-enchant your space. Look at your office. Is it enchanted or is it just a functional space, like a motivational poster up? Put some icons up. Get some candles. Have some reminders. Have a Bible out. Whatever you need to do, enchant your space. Make it sacred. Move through the world with reminders of, uh, of the transcendent. Don't just le- look at you. And we have ways to do this, right? There's lots. You can do this in any, your own aesthetic. I like the Catholic aesthetic. You might like Mardell. <laughs> um, you guys have a Mardell in your town? Yeah, yeah. I'm not being mean to Mardell. <laughs> I got, what, two minutes here? I want to talk about William James. Um, the last little bit here is, again, attention. To, to cultivate in, in a, an experience of the sacred, you got to pay attention. you got to be vigilant. Um, and William James, in his famous book, uh, the, the Rise of Religious Experience, I don't have time to explain all that. But one of the things he does in his chapter on mystical experience is he suggests that we, these, we, ha- we have these all the time. He goes through his whole chapter, famous chapter. He's not right from a Christian perspective. He says, we bump into like moments of like magic all the time, from the small to the big. And if that's true, those are the thermals that we can catch. These, these moments of like insight or revelation, like this is it. This is a moment. You guys have those all the time. From movies to poetry to art to a sunset to you tuck your kid in or you look at your kid and they just are breathing. Remember that? And you're like, and if you're not paying attention, you're not cultivating the sacred, like this is needs to be hallowed, the breath of a baby. Right? 
holding hands with your spouse, coffee with a friend. Does it make sense? Like, you got to start paying attention and hallowing well. Um, otherwise, you're like, where's God? Well, all around, really. These short-lived things that interrupt us, and they're really hard to put in words. I can't tell you what it feels like to hear a baby sleeping, but it's ineffable. But one of the things James talks about is the, the, the outcome of these experiences. How do you know you've had one? And he said they tend to be very uplifting and positive, and they tend to connect us with the world. A, a sense of unification. And my favorite example of this is, and I'm going to end. How much time do I got? I'm going to end with this. I got two minutes. My favorite mystical experiences. So you're kind of like, a mystical experience? Well, people, you're at a lectureship on the Holy Spirit, so let's talk about mystical experiences for a second. Like, my goodness. My favorite mystical experience is Thomas Merton. You guys know Thomas Merton, Catholic, contemplative. He was, on, he was in Louisville. He was on a street corner, 4th and Walnut. In fact, there's a plaque there on the 4th and Walnut in Louisville. It's, as best I know, it's the only historical marker in America devoted to a mystical experience on a street. He has this, and he was in this monastery, and, and he had been a cloistered monk for many years, and he had gone to the monastery because he was trying to separate himself from a depraved world, right? Go to the monastery where it's a pure space. And for the first time, he'd gone out, I think he was on like a dental appointment, so he finds himself out on the street as a monk, and he's looking at all these people walking around, and this is what happened to him. How many of you guys have heard this, the Fourth and Walnut Epiphany? In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, at the center of a shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, and that they were mine, that I was theirs, and that we could not be alien from another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness. This sense of liberation from this illusory difference between me and them was such a relief and such a joy that I almost laughed out loud. I have an immense joy at being a man, a member of the race in which God himself became incarnate. And as if all the sorrows and the stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me. And now, there on the fourth, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it really can't be explained. There's no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. That's a mystical experience, ladies and gentlemen. That's paying attention to those moments when you're walking down the street. Have you felt those? You're walking down the street, and you just kind of look around, and you go like, man, you guys are shining. I know you're sounding a little crazy doing this. You are shining like the sun, but you feel it. You feel these things. When these things happen to you, cultivate them and embrace them. That's the way you re-enchant your world. Get out of your head. Pay attention to the fourth and walnut experiences and surf the thermals back up to the heavens. Thank you for coming. See some of you guys tomorrow.